Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center, and today I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Brian Werner from the University of Virginia. Dr. Werner's paper entitled The Association of Osteoporosis and Bisphosphonate Use with Revision Shoulder Surgery After Rotator Cuff Repair is hot off the press. As many of us are aware, Dr. Werner and his group have published a number of papers recently using a large insurance data set to answer pretty important clinical questions pertaining to arthroscopic shoulder surgery. So I'm excited to be learning a little bit more about the Pearl Diver database this afternoon. Dr. Werner, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So before we get into the nuts and the bolts of your paper, um, I think a lot of our readers have been paying attention and that you guys have been um, on the vanguard of, of using this Pearl Diver database here over the last year or so to get into answering or helping us answer some really important um, clinical questions. But can you tell us a little bit more about what this database is, how you got involved in it, and, and what made you guys think that this might be a, a useful way of, of finding out a little bit more about surgical outcomes? Sure thing. So um, the Pearl Diver database, um, as you kind of mentioned a little bit, it's, it's a way of organizing patient information from insurance companies in a way that an author can query the database and, and answer relevant clinical questions. And so what Pearl Diver has is really two main insurance databases. It has a group of Medicare patients, so about a decade worth of Medicare patient data, um, and then about a, a separate database within Pearl Diver, Diver that has a, a, about a little over a decade's worth of information from a private payer, um, and that's Humana. Um, and what Pearl Diver does that some of the other databases don't do is it organizes it in a way that you can query the data in an efficient fashion um, and actually search through the data and link the patients over time to so find something that happened to a patient early on when they've had a surgery or have a diagnosis and then can attract them over time and see what that results in. Um, I first got interested in Pearl Divers probably been about eight or nine years ago. I saw one paper was published, I think it was out of Rush, um, but it was a very kind of simple paper just looking at um, you know the, the timeline of the procedure, so the trend in a certain procedure. I thought that seemed really interesting, and so I contacted the Pearl Diver people. Um, and, and at that point in time, really no one was using databases for what we use them for today. Um, and so we were able to get access to it. And we did some simple studies to start, but what we quickly realized is how much power there is in the database. And that if you have a very relevant clinical question, um, that you can use the database to at least provide you with some sort of very kind of interesting information about the patient's outcome after that surgery. Of course, there's a lot of limitations. We don't have things like range of motion values or you know, answers to surveys that patients give, but anything that has a diagnosis or a procedure code um, is something that shows up in the database and really kind of um, allows us to track that over time and see how the patient does. And it's kind of blossomed from there. The, the more we learn about the database, the more interesting clinical questions we can answer from it. Sure. And, and the limitations notwithstanding, which incidentally, I think you guys do a nice job of enumerating in your manuscript, but what are two or three main take-home points from your paper that, that our readers should be tucking away and taking with them? Um, so for this, this present paper, I think kind of there's really two main takeaway points. So what, what we were looking at in this paper um, were two questions. One, 
whether having a diagnosis of osteoporosis before the time of your rotator cuff surgery, if that increased your risk of needing a revision surgery at some point. And then our second question was looking at whether the use of bisphosphonate, so a drug that in theory improves your osteoporosis, whether that had any effect on that revision surgery rate. And so the two take-home points were to answer both of those questions. And number one, we found that having a diagnosis of osteoporosis did in significantly increase the rate of revision surgery after arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. And then for the second question we were asking, we really found no difference between patients that were taking bisphosphonates and that weren't taking bisphosphonates. Both of them had an equally increased risk of revision surgery after rotator cuff repair. Did that surprise you, that second, that second finding? Yeah, so that actually surprised me. So when we do these questions, you obviously have a hypothesis. And my hypothesis was that people that were being treated for their osteoporosis um, aggressively with a, with a strong drug to help improve their bone mineral density, my assumption was going to be that it would, it, would, it would decrease the rate of revision surgery. So that surprised me. And there's probably a couple of explanations for it. I mean, at least one explanation would be um, that it could be a real finding, that patients who are at osteoporosis, whether it's due to their osteoporosis or other medical comorbidities that we couldn't control for or the types of rotator cuff tears they get, that no matter what you do, that they're always going to be at higher risk. So that's one possible explanation. Another one that's equally plausible is that the reason we saw that is because patients who are taking an osteoporosis medication, so taking a bisphosphonate, they likely have worse osteoporosis than the patients who aren't taking a medication for it. We can't use a database to get a Z-score or a T-score and see the difference in bone mineral density. And perhaps those patients would have been at a higher risk if they weren't taking a bisphosphonate and that all the bisphosphonate does is bring them down to the same level as other osteoporotic patients who aren't taking the drug. So it's certainly possible, and you, you know, it would have to be something that would have to be done outside of a database study. It is possible that the bisphosphonate is doing something just based on kind of the 30,000-foot view, which is what a uh, you know, database study provides you, that there was no significant difference between the two. Sure. So, so if you guys show that, that the bisphosphonate dosing doesn't necessarily affect outcomes, does it really then become all about how we counsel the patients preoperatively and, and making sure that the surgeon and the patients have a realistic set of expectations as far as what they can expect out of their repair? Yes, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, it reminds us again as orthopedic surgeons, physicians, anyone who's seeing someone with a rotator cuff problem, that osteoporosis should be in our minds. And I think 10 years ago it wasn't. It's certainly becoming more common for us to think about it. But I think screening your patients, being aware of osteoporosis as a diagnosis and and, um, making sure that their primary care physicians are managing it um, is important. And so that was kind of one message of the paper is that osteoporosis does matter. Um, I don't necessarily think it changes our management of patients who have rotator cuff tears and osteoporosis, but it does help us counsel them and say, you know, you have this diagnosis. I don't think there's a reason not to do your surgery, but you certainly are slightly higher risk than patients who don't have osteoporosis for having an outcome that's less than ideal after your rotator cuff surgery. And so we'll work together to do everything we can to optimize it, make sure we get good fixation, and we'll make sure that we do rehab the right way. I don't think it necessarily changes how you do the surgery or whether you do surgery or not, but certainly it's important to counsel patients about the, uh, the, the, the possibility of having an increased risk of an adverse outcome. How are you screening patients for osteoporosis that you think have a rotator cuff tear that are going to need surgery? 
Um, I should admit, being the author of this paper, I probably should be doing it more. I mean, this, this is probably a paper, you know, we started six to nine months ago. Um, I'm at least more aware of the problem. Um, I have more patients seeing their primary care doctors. It's a discussion I have with more patients. I'm not personally ordering many DEXA scans on patients that I'm planning for, um, you know, rotator cuff repair. Um, but that, that may change over the next year or so. I, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly why your rotator cuff repairs fail. Um, but certainly I'm in the, you know, I, I try to do everything I can to optimize it. And, and so I, I think that, you know, the, the results of this paper certainly encourage me to think more about the bone when I'm doing a rotator cuff repair. I used to just think about the tendon and the muscle, um, but it also has now encouraged me to think about the bone and fixation and type of anchors and whether I need to refer them to the primary care doctor. So it's at least heightened my awareness of the bone um, when doing rotator cuff repairs. All right. So maybe an opportunity to tell your rep whoever's in the room helping you out to have some anchors of varying sizes, kind of broader than what's on the buffet. Exactly. All right. From a broader perspective, you know, I think that the, um, the arthroscopy journal editors um, have, have written a fair amount about um, the pearls and pitfalls of data pooling and systematic reviews. You know, systematic reviews, another type of study that we've seen, you know, explosion of in the last several years. I feel like everybody's doing systematic reviews and the arthroscopy journal editors to their great credit, have given us some guidance as far as what constitutes a good systematic review and what constitutes maybe not such a good systematic review. So what I'm interested to hear from you is, because you've been one of the originators of these types of studies, is what are some things that the that our readers can be looking for when they read these types of studies invi- uh, involving the Pearl Diver database in terms of trying to scrutinize what's a good study, What's a study that leaves some things to be desired? So I think the first thing to look at is who's doing the studies. Is it someone that's had some experience in doing it, or is it someone who's publishing their first study out of it? Not to discourage people from publishing their first study, um, but there's definitely an art to understanding how to code within Pearl Diver. You can pretty much type anything you want to, and you can get results to come back. It doesn't mean that the results are correct. Um, and it doesn't mean that you are actually answering the question that you want to do. So experience is everything. Um, for me, at least, it took me a year or more to really become facile at coding within the database and actually achieving what I wanted to do in there. So I, I think experience in the database or having an experienced investigator who's used to using databases or another one and how to do the coding is important. I think one of the most important things that I've tried to do in my database studies and I would encourage readers to do um, is look and see what kind of question they're trying to answer with the database. There are some things that are very reasonable to try to use a database to not necessarily answer the question, but provide information on the question. There's some things that are just way outside the scope of a database that they just, there's no business of a database study trying to address it. And so what we've really tried to do is take very kind of focused clinical questions or basic science questions in some instances um, that we feel would be really challenging to answer at least initially, without using a large volume of patients through a database study, um, and really focusing those questions. So not trying to ask very broad questions, but very kind of discrete questions. Something we've done a lot of is look at injections. That's something that's very well coded in an insurance database. An injection generates a bill. The insurer has to pay for that bill for the injection to occur. So that's something that is very reliably coded. There are other things that require the, 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 the whoever's the physician in clinic or the medical assistant or the nurse to enter it. Things like obesity, which I did a while ago, and some of these other topics, um, it, it requires someone to actually enter it. And it's not 
coded particularly well sometimes. So sticking to things like procedures as your primary thing, so rotator cuff repair, looking at outcomes that have a procedure involved with them, so revision rotator cuff repair, those things are going to be coded really well. And so those are questions that you can answer if you focus it. Looking at outcomes like stiffness is a little bit harder because that requires someone to enter that diagnosis. Uh, and so it, it becomes a little more challenging to trust the data. Also trying to answer questions that just don't necessarily make sense. Um, I don't know how to word that better, but using using the database to to look at very focused questions that have answers that are going to be reliably coded is really what you want to be looking for. And so I personally, even though I publish a bunch of these, really take every database study that I review as a reviewer or that I read in the journal with a little bit of grain of salt until I really read the methods and make sure that they are coding this in a way that makes sense, that their outcome is something that can be determined from a database that is going to be coded well in an insurance database, and then seeing what they're trying to do with that data. A lot of what I try to do with my data is publish it so that we can be encouraged to do other studies that might confirm that data, either look at another database, do a retrospective or prospective study of your own patients, try to encourage people to confirm the findings of, of what we found. Absolutely. Well, kudos to you. I think um, if we're if we're taking that as a, a measure of success, I'd say um, home run all the way around. So great job to you and the rest of the guys at the University of Virginia. All right. Well, that's going to do it uh, for this podcast. Uh, Dr. Werner's article entitled The Association of Osteoporosis and Bisphosphonate Use with Revision Shoulder Surgery After Rotator Cuff Repair was just published online as an article in press and can be currently accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us.